Hello, and welcome to Professor Kozlowski Lectures. Today we are talking about Gilgamesh. Uh, this one was a Patreon-requested topic and suggestion. One of the things that I'm doing these days on my Patreon is if you're contributing about $10 American or more, you get to pick one of the topics that we cover during the summer. Uh, it's like a one-off lecture bonus topic that you know, we get to talk about whatever we darn well please. I go out and do the research, and then I prepare a lecture for it. So, if you're interested in such things in the future, by all means, join the Patreon, contribute your own topics, and we will talk about whatever you want to talk about in the future. Uh, but today we're talking about Gilgamesh. And good grief, for the last week or so, I have been neck deep in Mesopotamian and Sumerian and Akkadian literature and language stuff and various studies and articles and I don't even know. Um, this has been quite a deep rabbit hole to sort of find myself in, and obviously after doing like one week's worth of studying, I am nowhere near understanding the whole picture of what's going on here. And what's more, I'm kind of unsatisfied with the work that I've done. Um, this is fairly new for me, you know, I am the scholar who goes charging into a topic half-cocked, says my piece on it, and then never talks about it again, except possibly, you know, revising and correcting in a future lecture. Um, so we're going to do this one a little bit differently. I'm, if it isn't obvious, I usually churn these things out, one and done. That's, that's it. Like, I do my research, I do my reading, I show up to this lecture, I record it in however long it takes to record. I used to vet them, I don't even do that now. Um, it's, I say my piece and post it and move on to the next thing. Uh, but this time I'm going to insert some fairly heavy-duty caveats. I've got another book coming tomorrow, and I've got more research to do still on this subject, but I think 90% of what I'm about to say in this lecture is going to be totally legitimate and relevant. So I am recording this sucker now, and I will upload an edited version of this lecture if, in fact, I find that there are some dramatic changes that need to be made between now and the next lecture recording. Um, I'm also going to stress right here and now, we're going to do this in two lectures. Um, much as, you know, my bonus lecture on Patreon business is for one lecture, I found that this one definitely required two. Um, so we're going to start by talking about the situation. We're going to talk about the history of the text. We're going to talk about the Sumerian and Akkadian civilization, everything that's going on there. We're going to do a brief summary of what's actually going on in the text of the epic. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the major god figures and stuff. And then next time we're going to do our deep dive. Um, so depending on what you were looking for in the discussion of Gilgamesh, this might not be the lecture for you. We're going to be talking about a lot of weird translation issues and history of texts and complicated scholarly, you know, behind-the-curtain business today. Um, and the intention, again, if I do need do in fact need to update this, we'll do that. But hopefully tomorrow or Monday I'll be able to record the second part of the lecture, i.e. our deep dive, our close examination of the actual text, its themes, and everything that's going on there. Um, for now, we got to talk about the context. Context, as I've stressed in many of my lectures, is super important understanding, you know, anything, be it literature, history, you name it. For here, it's even more important, though. 
Um, because most of the texts that we've talked about on this lecture series, whether they are Greek mythological works or philosophical texts or, you know, literature in various forms, we usually have a pretty finished version of whatever it is that we're talking about. Like, heck, even the Iliad and the Odyssey, old as they are, much as I keep referring to them as, like, the bedrock of Greek uh, literature, mythology, and language, it's still duplicated enough, well-attested enough, that we don't have a whole heck of a lot of textual questions about what is actually going on with the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, part of that is because we don't care. <laughs> like, to put it bluntly, you know, as much as everybody gets so worked up and so excited about textual criticisms for the Old and New Testament, um, that's because everybody is looking over them with an incredibly fine-toothed comb. Um, and then anything that disagrees in scribal accounts or in old texts, we tend to get really worked up about. Oh, this means that the text is not reliable. Oh, this means that, you know, the theology is questionable. Oh, this means that this text is, you know, not trustworthy and therefore Christianity is bull. Largely because, again, everybody is out to prove either that Christianity is rock solid or that Christianity is nonsense. For the Iliad, we don't have that kind of investment. Um, like, we're keen to find out what the Iliad and the Odyssey say, but nobody is trusting this for, for religious direction. And as a consequence, where there are textual problems, where there are issues in, in the way that it's preserved, we kind of throw up our hands, give our best guess, and move on to our next problem. The Gilgamesh, however, is a freaking mess. Um, like... This is, there is no extant text that completely gets the entirety of the Akkadian epic of Gilgamesh, start to finish. It is largely a composite of a mess of other texts, of, you know, older texts that are, that are sort of being su supplemented to fill in the gaps in our understanding. Some new stuff, some old stuff, some stuff that seems obviously related, some stuff that may or may not have been related and is actually shoehorned in. It's, it's just messy, ugly work. Um, you cannot read the Epic of Gilgamesh the way that you read the Iliad or the Odyssey, and definitely not the way that you read some modern text that comes to you completely vetted, edited, and printed from the hand of whatever author who wrote it like 20 years ago. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and that's the first thing that I really want to emphasize here. As much as I was sort of tasked to understand, like, what is going on with the Gilgamesh here. And as much as we do have a really strong understanding of what the actual events of this story are, what the myth actually looks like, you know, what is associated with this character and with this mythic tradition, I really want to stress at the outset that it's not that clear. Um, the epic of the Iliad, the epic of the Odyssey, you know, most of the, the great Greek works that you run into, we generally see that there's one authoritative interpretation. Homer wrote the Iliad. We're looking for Homer's Iliad. We don't have any extant copies of pre-Homeric Iliad narratives, at least so far as I know. Um, so we just go with what we've got. But for the Gilgamesh, there is no definitive text here. Every text we have is broken, every text we have is fragmentary, and you're kind of immediately presented with this big question out the outset. Are you looking for a workable version of the story? 
compiled and composited from a variety of different other texts, or are we staying true to a more minimalistic account? We want specifically the version that is presented to us in Akkadian by Sinleki Ununi, and we want definitively what he has to say on the subject. If you're going for the loosey-goosey version, you know, the, the we just want the story, give us everything you know about Gilgamesh, and we'll, we'll like, cram it together into something resembling an epic, using the Akkadian version as our, our template, or our framing, at least. That's fairly easy. Um, like, the information is out there, there's a lot of different sources that are composited, but I want to stay away from that, in fact. Like, I'm not entirely sure if that was the intent of the patron when he said, hey, tell me about the Gilgamesh, but we're going to stick pretty strictly to the Akkadian Gilgamesh here. We're going to treat this like a Homeric epic, even though we don't have the materials to do that. Now, the question you might ask is, why? That doesn't make any sense. Like, you don't seem to really care about where your sources are coming from when it comes to most Greek mythology. Like, obviously, the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, predates Homer. You know, you don't seem to be showing that much interest in this case. The fact of the matter is, like, I'm going to come at this as though there is an authoritative translation, that there is some theoretical text out there that was in fact put into words by Sinleki Anuni once upon a time, um, or whoever Sinleki Anuni's text is attributed to, like, I don't know, again, there are so many questions about this text, um, but I really want to stress that, like, when we look at the Gilgamesh, we have to recognize that we're looking at five different versions of the story simultaneously, and there's a lot of problems with doing that that just don't come up when you're looking at the Library of Apollodorus, or the Iliad of Homer, or even the Old Testament. Um, we need to recognize that these stories were told for different reasons at different times. Um, so the reason why I'm sticking to the Akkadian Sinleki Anuni epic of Gilgamesh is because that's the biggest one we've got. That's the one that takes these various disparate stories, works them into an overall narrative with its own purposes, its own intentions, and if we want to do anything resembling literary criticism to this thing, if we want to talk about this myth on any context greater than what did Gilgamesh the awesome hero do, we're going to have to look specifically at one text, one author, one perspective, one historical conglomeration, and we're going to have to leave anything that doesn't belong to that on the table to some degree. Um, so with that in mind, our second lecture here, the one where I actually do the literary criticism stuff, where I talk about themes, where I talk about you know what the author's intentions are, what it means to the culture at the time, we're going to look very narrowly at just the Epic of Gilgamesh as we have it from the Akkadian texts, from Sinleki Sununi, from that particular moment in history. Today, however, we're going to talk about the tradition, because that's the goal of this whole, like, let's talk context, let's talk about what Sinleki Yununi is actually doing, let's talk about, you know, what the difference between the Sumerian old Babylonian texts and the, you know, relatively late Akkadian or even Hittite versions of this story are actually doing. It's crazy and complicated and a mess. But let's stress at the outset, the goal here is to talk about the bigger context of Gilgamesh in order to talk about the epic of Gilgamesh as a literary work. 
I know that's a little weird, may not even make all that much sense, but that's the aim that I'm making here. And hopefully it will become more clear as I sort of talk about the problems and the issues and the historical context and so on and so forth. The reason why I'm doing this may not seem obvious now, it will become more obvious as we go along. So with that in mind, let's talk sources. Um, I consulted quite a few weird, disparate sources in the process of researching this, um, as I really did want to get a decent understanding of what the heck was going on with Gilgamesh. Like, I've read about half a dozen different translations at this point of, you know, the Gilgamesh in a variety of sort of contexts, and trying to piece them all together was just troubling to me. Some of the details that were told in some stories were missing from others. Some of the, you know, versions that I was reading from one translator or author didn't line up with what was going on with another translator or author. Um, so I wanted to dig deeply enough to understand why this was the case. Why it was that you could pick up three different books that all say this is the Epic of Gilgamesh and come up with three radically different experiences, three completely different understandings. Um, so with that in mind, let's start with the base that I start with. Um, when I teach Gilgamesh in my mythology classes, and honestly my first like encounter with the Gilgamesh story as you know epic as story actually comes from extra mythology. Um, like you can look it up right now. Type in extra mythology Gilgamesh, and you'll come up with like this two episode series that extra mythology did, along with the lies episode that James Port now put together. And I teach all three of these videos in my class because they're awesome and they're a really good take on the on the material. Um, they're a great baseline understanding for what we're going to talk about in greater depth. So honestly, like if you haven't watched those, if you don't know anything about Gilgamesh and want to know what I'm talking about here, I honestly recommend that you like pause this, go watch those videos. It'll take you all 20 minutes. Come back and we'll have a decent baseline to talk from. Um, the problem, however with the extra mythology videos is that they are doing the composite work without much in the way of explanation. This is, you know, Gilgamesh digested for a popular audience. We are not talking on a scholarly level here, even when Portnow breaks down some of the themes and the ideas and goes into the context a little bit. He's not going into it nearly as deeply as I'm going to be going into it here. Um, so on the one hand, this is an incredibly useful source. It covers only half the text, and it covers it in a very composite way, so again, very different approach from what we're doing here, but if you just want, hey, I want to understand what's going down with Gilgamesh, that's a really great place to start. Um, it's where I started, it's where my students start, it's what I honestly recommend to start with. Um, but if we're going deeper, and trust me, we are going deeper, the next source I would suggest is another one that my students are going to bump into. Um, our textbook for the mythology class, which I've talked about at great length before, is the second edition of Carolina Lopez Ruiz's God's Heroes and Monsters. Um, it's a fairly expensive textbook if all that you're out to look for is, in fact, Gilgamesh. Um, but it's definitely got a lot of good scholarship surrounding it. It does not treat the epic as itself an epic. Like, there is, in fact, one um, chunk of the, one selection of the text called The Epic of Gilgamesh, where she uh, specifically takes, like, chunks of tablet one to one and two and then like five and six in order to talk about like Gilgamesh and Humbaba and all like the main events there. Again, the same stuff that the extra mythology video is going around or going around doing. But she also includes uh, books 10 and 11 
uh, Tablet 6 at a later point in, in the textbook. Like, if you read everything she's got about the Gilgamesh in this textbook, you'll actually get most of what we're going to talk about. And in a much denser, much more scholarly form than we are going to see, you know, from extra mythology and from lots of sort of just blatantly composite contemporary sources. She's doing her homework, she's taking a more minimalistic approach, um, but it is fragmentary. She's not giving us the whole thing at once, she's not treating it as a story, so again, it's kind of incomplete here. Um, for our actual complete look, the translation that I am working from and that I will be referring to often here, um, there's kind of two of them. One of them I don't have yet, so, you know, that's all in anticipation. Like, if you want an actual contemporary quasi-composite but also quasi-scholarly look at it, like, I highly recommend the Norton Critical Edition of Gilgamesh, which I'm going to be looking at in greater detail and which I'm probably going to refer to a lot in my second lecture. The one that I'm relying on especially now because it is a great examination of the actual business of translating the Gilgamesh while still trying to remain true to, like, specifically the Akkadian epic is actually John Gardner and John Mayer's translation from 1982. Um, part of the reason why I'm sticking to this text is because I friggin' love John Gardner. Like, I knew that John Gardner had translated the Gilgamesh. I had referred to it and even read it, like, the, specifically the translation before though I'd never studied it. Um, so honestly, as much as, like, when I was said, when my, you know, patron told me, hey, I want you to look at Gilgamesh, like, the first thing that came to mind was, I'm going to get the Gardner translation. Like, finally, I'm going to have an excuse to really dig into this thing, to really understand both Gardner's work on the project, as well as Mayer and the other translators involved. I'm going to actually, like, understand it, and I'm going to use this as my baseline for understanding it. Um, so with that in mind... Let me recommend that. Like, part of the reason why I do this is because I've seen Gardner's translation before. I know Gardner's work as a medievalist, um, as well as his work as a novelist, and I love him. Like, I've said nice things about Gardner before. Heck, in my very last lecture, I had nothing but nice things to say about Nicholson's Ghosts. I love Grendel and the work that he did on Beowulf. Gardner does really good work even though this is not his area of expertise. Um, he had a vested interest in the Gilgamesh story from his work on the Sunlight Dialogues, and when Mayer reached out to him and was like, hey, you want to actually do this, you want to actually translate Gilgamesh as we have it, I'm sure he was like ecstatic and really put his heart into it, even though what we have is actually just his first draft, because Gardner died before he was able to like actually continue work on this. Um, his goal, though, was basically the same goal that I would have in mind. Namely, he was translating it so he could teach it in his classes at SUNY Binghamton in the 80s. Um, so we're talking about a scholar who is doing diligent work, who is especially good at, you know, translating into contemporary American prose. The downside of the Gardner translation is that it's from 1982. Um, or rather, a little after 1982, what is it, 87, that, like, it was actually, 84. Um, it's old, is what it comes down to. And some of the decisions that Mayer is making very deliberately have since been overturned by the scholarly community, so far as I can tell. However, 
The trick that I keep running into is where Mayer and Gardner take a very minimalistic approach, we refuse to incorporate external resources. We are going to specifically examine this epic of Gilgamesh, this Akkadian discussion, and the context surrounding it. I find that a lot of the scholars who are doing quote, more modern translations are playing way faster and looser with other sources. The great thing about the Gardner translation and the mayor, uh, the mayor cooperation here is that they're very specifically limiting their perspective to the Sinleki Ununi Akkadian version of this text. Um, they're looking at it as a literary work and at they're doing their work as a work of translation, not an attempt to sort of render the complete story of Gilgamesh. So on the one hand, I am really looking forward to reading the Norton Critical Edition because I'm definitely keen to see what it has to say, and those are excellent at very much annotating and emphasizing every step of the way. So I trust that they are not going to like go beyond themselves and just drop in stuff from other sources without explanation. On the other hand, I do worry that it will be more composite than I'm looking for here. So, again, we'll talk about that more either when I edit this episode uh, after I've read it or later when I do this, the second lecture here. What I'm stressing about the Gardner translation, though, is that it is heavy-duty annotations here. Like, there is way more annotation than there is even text. Mayer is walking through the process as much as he is, like, actually doing the translation here. So as a consequence, we very much see, like, the scholar's perspective on what is going on with this text, what is actually happening when a translator approaches the Epic of Gilgamesh, what exactly the difference is between the old Babylonian text, which we'll talk about in a moment, and the actual, like, epic as epic, which we have from the Akkadians and from Sindleki and Nubi specifically. Um, so that's the translation I'm largely going to be quoting from. That's the translation I'm largely going to be referring to. And if I'm dope, not specifying otherwise, you can bet that Gardner's translation is the one that I'm, I'm like relying on in my interpretation, my understanding, and especially when I'm at, whenever I'm quoting it. Um, now, the other text that Mayer especially is relying upon is this apparently really landmark work by a guy named John Tigay in 1982 called The Evolution of the Gilgamesh Epic. Um, this book was apparently this watershed, groundbreaking, hugely influential work um, that basically took the hundred years of Gilgamesh study that had been happening from like the first discovery of the text in the library of Ashurbanipal back in like 1880 all the way up to the 1980s when people had pretty heavily worked on this text, found other Sumerian uh, versions of this myth, and sort of like worked them all together. Tige's whole thing in the evolution of the Gilgamesh epic was, was basically trying to piece together a story about this story. Going from the earliest extant Sumerian versions of this myth to the Akkadian version and talking step by step how did we go from the old version to the new version. Um, I've read a couple of excerpts from this book. I'm especially I've read um, the ten-page summary by Tigay himself. Uh, there's this great book that I stumbled across at Montclair's library called Gilgamesh, A Reader, which is actually edited by John Mayer um, back in the 90s, I want to say. Yeah, it was like 97, 98 that this book was published. Um, but it includes Tige basically breaking down his entire book into a 10-page summary, which basically goes over all of the main 
features. Rather than getting into the nitty-gritty of why he believes this, making arguments to prove it, he's basically saying, okay, so I wrote this book, everybody loves this book, everybody's taking this book as authoritative, here are the, the high points, the, the summary of, of what we need to say. And that's an, it's also something that Mayer refers to frequently in his translation with Gardner. Um, both of them are very interested in the history of the text itself, in addition to the text itself. The translation in its context, in its appro appropriate moment. Um, and that's something that I'll be referring to here pretty frequently. Like, throughout this discussion, you can bet I am relying on Mayer's commentary and Tigay's summary in order to sort of put together our history of this text and its place in Sumerian literature, Akkadian literature, so on and so forth. Now, if you actually want to read those old texts, the Sumerian versions of, of old Gilgamesh myths and stuff, the source that I'm using here is the one that everybody uses. Um, the ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament as edited by James B. Pritchard. This is like the book that you want to track down if, in fact, you are studying anything around... Gilgamesh, the Sumerian literary corpus, like, this book is so crazy authoritative, it's in virtually, like, every pastor's library, every, um, Sumerian scholar's library, like, I, I tracked down a copy for myself just because I, you know, I just wanted it, um, back when I was in seminary, but it has become incredibly invaluable to me as I've learned to, like, study and, and work on the like mythology classes. It's got texts from ancient Egypt. It's got texts from Sumer, from Babylon, from the Akkadian tradition, from the Hittite world. Like, it's just chock full of anything you could possibly want in the way of mythological references, historical references, heck, even legal treatises like the Code of Hammurabi are in here. This book is amazing. It is like a reference work necessity for anyone who's doing this kind of work. Um, you can probably find it at any library worth its salt. It might be in your church library if you have such a thing. Like, ask around. People know this book. Um, my copy I got on the cheap because it's the second edition, not the third edition, so I'm missing a lot of the more recent scholarship about Gilgamesh, which is a bummer. Um, but it does have at least the best translations of, at the time, namely 1955, of all of the huge, hugely important Sumerian reference texts, as well as basically a functional working translation of the Epic of Gilgamesh itself. Um, so if you want context for this, this is the book you want. Like, this is the book that everybody uses for context. Again, Mara is referring to it frequently. Tigay has it on his shelf. Like, everybody uses this stuff to sort of just have the basic scholarly groundwork necessary to understand this culture um, and these myths especially. Now, if you don't have enough money or time or resources to find the book itself, fortunately there is an online repository, especially for the Sumerian texts. Um, I imagine that a lot of the other stuff is there as well, although it's not as conveniently in one place. Um, in my studies, I did track down uh, this great site called the eText Corpus of Sumerian Lit. Um, and you can track that down online. Like, it's run through, I think, Oxford, but it's honestly kind of dodgy in its presentation. Very clearly has been around for quite a while. Um, but it also has the, roughly the same translations that Pritchard is working with in his ancient Near Eastern text related to the Old Testament. Like, if you're looking for, again, a lot of the myths that we're going to be referring to, a lot of the myths that are sort of pulled from by Sinleki Anuni, um, 
it's the cheapest and quickest place that you can go to find that. Um, so those are the sources that I'm primarily using here. I've got my mythology textbooks, again, Lopez Ruiz, again, um, the extra mythology videos. We are relying heavily on Gardner's translation, Tigay's discussion of the evolution, and Pritchard's collection of ancient Near Eastern texts. Those are my texts. Those are my sources. If I've got other stuff, it's probably from my usual run of Wikipedia, summary sources online, that sort of thing. Um, so with that in mind, let's move our attention to actually what um, is going on here, like what the story of this book actually is. Um, as I pieced it together from Tigay, from Mayer, from from the you know other texts that I've read, etc., etc., we got to start by talking about what the deal is in like the provenance of both Gilgamesh in his time, as well as like the whole literary world of Sumer, of Babylon, etc., etc. Um, anytime that you start digging into Sumerian literature, Akkadian literature, Babylonian literature, generally Mesopotamian literature, generally, the first thing you got to talk about is you got your Sumerian lit and you got your Akkadian literature. Um, Sumerian writing has been around since probably around 3000 BCE. Um, like, we've got fragmentary stuff referring to, you know, older material from, like, 2500 and beyond. Um, suffice it to say that the Sumerian language is, like, the first language we have in any form. Um, as much as it's probably not the only place where it happened, we, most scholars usually credit Sumer with the invention of writing. Um, and you'll, like, most language systems, most writing systems, are grown out of the Sumerian cuneiform tradition and the Egyptian hieroglyphic tradition, which admittedly are sort of independent entities in their own right, with their own advantages and disadvantages. Um, the great thing about the cuneiform system is its flexibility. Hieroglyphics are a lot. There's a ton of them, and while they are pictorial and therefore easier to interpret, easier to sort of read at a glance, they're not nearly as flexible for capturing abstract ideas the way that the cuneiform alphabet or syllabic alphabet sort of um, actually works. And all of the texts that we're talking about today are written in cuneiform. Um, the Sumerian myths that the Epic of Gilgamesh is based on, as well as the Epic of Gilgamesh itself, all cuneiform. Um, cuneiform is basically like you write in this in these clay tablets while they're soft, and then you fire them in order to make them hard. Um, the way that you inscribe your writing in this case is you use a like pointed reed, which usually has a fat part on one end and a thin part on the other end. And then depending on where you point the reed, how many marks you make with the reed, whether the um, reed is vertical or reed mark is vertical or horizontal or diagonal, that's how how you get like language in this case. Um, different patterns of cuneiform marks end up making the various syllables on the, t on the actual tablet. Um, but there are obviously problems with this. Um, when it comes to the actual business of like reading cuneiform, seeing the actual physical editions, these are on clay, not parchment and paper, which means they fragment, they break, um, and most of the texts that we're dealing with here come from very fragmentary, very broken tablets. Um, for the Epic of Gilgamesh itself, as we're going to discuss in a little bit, 
it's really sort of up in the air whether we have a good fragment or a bad fragment. Like, Tablet 1 of the Gilgamesh is pretty well preserved. We've got like 75% of the tablet just as it is. We can translate like 90% of what's going on there. It's great. But you move on to something like Tablet 2 or Tablet 3 and it is a giant mess and whole columns are missing and just huge swaths of text are just gone and we have no way of recovering them. Um, just because, like, the chunks that we have are, again, not the whole picture. Uh, nor do we have a lot of copies. Like, when you have, in fact, cuneiform text, when you have, you know, really ancient tablet, like, stone or clay-based writing, usually there's enough of them that you can piece together what any one of them is saying if it's a text that has been disseminated fairly widely. Um, for Gilgamesh, we have literally, like handfuls of copies of this text and each one of them is fragmentary we like most of them come from one or two archaeological finds the one in Megadu, the one in Ashurbanipal um it's real difficult to piece it together because we don't have a lot of a lot of copies a lot of sort of sources to potentially to potentially use uh, we don't have a lot of attestation um, and where we do have attestation, the trouble is, again, we end up in that composite game. Is the source at Megadu the same text as the one that we found at Ashurbanipal? Um, was it the same writer? Is like, yes, it has a lot of the same story beats. Can we still rely upon both of these as though they are essentially the same text? The way that we do with, say, you know, different versions of, of the New Testament or Old Testament, which are all reaching back to some theoretical Greek monograph that we don't have, as opposed to, like, are these wildly different traditions that have grown out of wildly different cultures, wildly different time periods, whatever. Um, so again, we're sticking to that Ashurbanipal find primarily and using the other stuff to supplement it where appropriate, um, but being very careful about that. Now, the trick with Sumer and Akkad here, historically, is while Sumer was definitely the, the culture that invented writing, either for the purposes of, like, tracking, you know, granaries and, and doing basic, like, accounting slash bureaucracy work, um, we really don't see... Like, Sumer, Sumer definitely had its own literary tradition. It had its own myths. It definitely recorded quite a few of those myths, and we have quite a few of those myths, as we'll talk about in a moment. The trick is, we don't get Babylon as this empire until the Akkadians kind of take over. Um, Sumer, as a culture, was, you know, it, they definitely had their own sort of urbanization process. They were centered around what we now call Babylon. Um, but it was a sort of loose affiliation of a number of different city-states, kind of after the Greek model, um, that just all existed throughout Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, what is now, you know, Iran, Iraq, in, in that sort of Arabian Peninsula territory. Um, it, they really didn't start doing, like, actual empire building until a series of kings rose up in roughly the 2300s BC, uh, most notably Sargon the Great, um, who moved the capital of Mesopotamian Sumerian culture to the city of Akkad, and kind of like had, took their own Akkadian dialect and layered it onto the cuneiform language that the Sumerians had sort of built. Where the Sumerian language is kind of built from scratch, 
where the characters of the cuneiform tablet are sort of reflecting the Sumerian language all by itself, the Akkadians basically took those, the cuneiform Sumerian syllabic noises and then just sort of borrowed them for their pre-existing Akkadian language. Um, Akkadian was more Semitic in origin and has a lot of connections to the whole Semitic language group, including most notably Old Testament Hebrew. Um, like, the Jewish language is very closely related to the Akkadian language in a way that it simply isn't related to the Sumerian language. But again, since the Akkadian kind of took over and became sort of the center of what the nascent Babylonian Empire Later works from Babylon follow that Semitic Babylonian slash Akkadian model. Although, again, it's going to get, like, changed and corrupted and, and sort of bumped, bumping into Assyrian and Hittite and, you know, Jewish language and all the rest of that stuff. Um, for our purposes, we need to be keenly aware of the fact that when we talk about Gilgamesh specifically, we're talking about two major historical periods. Uh, we're talking about the pre-Akkadian takeover Sumerian texts written in Sumerian, um, which include most of our old myths that we're going to talk about in a moment. And then we have to recognize that the epic that we have is actually an Akkadian production. It is considerably later. The old Sumerian texts probably date back to like 2500 to 2400, possibly beyond that. Again, I'm rough on dates. Um, our Epic of Gilgamesh probably dates much more recently to like 1500, 1600 BCE, although the text itself, the story itself, is probably something that goes all the way back to 2200, 2100, 2000 BCE. Now, notice... The dates we're talking about here are remarkably old. Um, like, Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey, we're talking 800 BCE, not 2000 BCE. So we are looking at some really, really early stuff here. Um, I'm not entirely sure how it all fits together, how, like, the dates of the tablets measure up to the date that we usually attribute the story being told to. Like, that's not my wheelhouse. It's not what we're going for here. We are looking rough at this context. Um, but nonetheless, we're talking about stories that probably date to, like, 2000 BCE and earlier, dating from texts that we're getting that are in, like, the you know, second millennium BCE, still way older than anything that Homer has to offer, and this well predates the Greek civilization as we usually talk about it. Um, now the story itself, like, who is Gilgamesh? Gilgamesh probably was an actual king. There are some pretty decent records that tie him to um, the early Sumerian, like, world in the city of Uruk especially, probably around 2700 BCE. Um, and this is kind of weird in and of itself. Like, many of the Greek heroes that we talk about, we can't actually pin down to a specific person. Uh, like, there are quasi-historical records about Greek kings like Theseus, or um, obviously Pericles was a legitimate person, much as there might have been some mythologization surrounding him, or like Kyrgyz, the, the famous legendary Spartan king. Like, these seem to be historical figures, but it's really hard to come up with something comparable for someone like Hercules or Heracles, Perseus, Bellerophon. Um, 
probably historical, probably mythological, but it's real hard to decide where one ends and the other begins. Gilgamesh, however, is surprisingly well attested for a guy who lived literally 5,000 years ago. Um, as far as we can tell, he really was the king of Uruk, and he really did build the walls around the city of Uruk, which itself is a pretty impressive accomplishment, seeing as we're talking about, like, miles worth of walls, the perimeter of the city and the walls that we've actually discovered around Uruk, um, probably are about five miles in perimeter. So, you know, this is all by itself, before you even start talking about Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven and, you know, meeting Utnapishtim in the netherworld beyond the, beyond the mountains, he's got a pretty decent legacy. Um, he's a cool dude. He's a heroic dude. He's a major historical figure without even getting into the mythology of the epic surrounding him. Um, now, obviously, really important historical figures have this sort of snowballing effect where stories sort of grow up around them, whether they're true or not. Um, the example I usually use is, you know, the whole business of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree probably didn't happen. Probably a combination of, like, folk stories and just admiration for this dude kind of growing up around his legacy. The same seems to be true with Gilgamesh. What we know about him from a historical basis is he built these walls. was a really cool king. Lots of people liked him. Um, what we get from the mythological tradition, however, is kind of a different story. It's clear that there are a variety of sort of storytelling traditions surrounding Gilgamesh as a mythological figure. Um, and here is where we're sort of turning our attention to the myths themselves. Like, open up your ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, bring up the E-Text Sumerian corpus, however you want to do this. Um, let's talk about the major references here. Gilgamesh as a figure and Sumerian literature generally, especially those that contribute to the Akkadian epic of Gilgamesh that we're going to be primarily focusing our attention on. And there are a bunch of these. Um, first of all, there's the Gilgamesh and Aga story. Um, there's not a whole lot that is coming from the Gilgamesh and Aga story that ultimately informs the Epic of Gilgamesh. I'm sorry, there's a thunderstorm going on, and we are just recording through it because, you know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead here. Um, the Gilgamesh and Aga story doesn't have a whole lot to contribute to the Gilgamesh epic. Um, it is basically this story of, like, Gilgamesh is the king of Uruk, and this guy shows up, Aga, who is like, I'm gonna take over your city, and then it gets really ambiguous as to whether, like, Gilgamesh is like, dude, I'm Gilgamesh, you owe your allegiance to me, and Aga's like, oh shit, and he, like, immediately bows to Gilgamesh, or alternatively, if Gilgamesh is like, oh yeah, you're, you're cool, I bow to you, the pronouns and the, the actual references seem really freaking unclear here, um, but suffice it to say, there is this old mythological tradition of Gilgamesh and Aga that places Gilgamesh in the city of Uruk, um, that makes him this sort of mighty, stout king. And importantly, Enkidu is there, is there too. Um, Enkidu has a lot to do in the whole Gilgamesh and Aga sort of incident and interaction. And as is typical of the old Babylonian, the, the Sumerian tradition surrounding Gilgamesh, Enkidu is Gilgamesh's servant. Not his equal slash friend, the way that he's presented in the Akkadian epic. Um, which is interesting all by itself. Like, T.A. makes a big deal of this, where, where Enkidu used to be Gilgamesh's servant, but is sort of raised up to be, like, this foil counterpart, best friend sort of thing. Um, Enkidu was just, like, 
Gilgamesh's right-hand man, as far as the Sumerian tradition seems to have it. He was his steward, the guy who managed the kingdom for him. Um, so, obviously, the history between these two is, is really important, and we're going to see, even in some of the old Sumerian myths, like, there's obviously a great friendship between the two of them, even as his servant. Um, but it's significant to note that the Gilgamesh and Enkidu, best friends forever, as presented by extra mythology and as is sort of understood um, from our contemporary reading of Gilgamesh, is kind of a new development. Um, is fairly recent in the history of stories about Gilgamesh here. Um, older still is the Gilgamesh is the king, Enkidu is his servant, and they just go like this. Um, the real story that everyone does get really excited about, the one that is frequently referred to as, like, the old Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh, if such a thing exists, is the story called, in the ancient Near Eastern text edition at least, um, Gilgamesh in the Land of the Living. Um, on the e-text version, you'll find it listed as Gilgamesh and Humbaba, because that's kind of the main event here. Like, Gilgamesh goes to the land of the living, i.e. the land where the cedars are, and he confronts Humbaba with the help of Enkidu. And a lot of the storytelling that we get, especially from the Extra Mythology video, as well as a lot of the stuff that we find in the Epic of Gilgamesh of the Akkadians, circulates around this interaction. Enkidu apparently informs Gilgamesh that there's this big bad monster dude called Humbaba hanging out in the forest. They go to take care of this. Um, they apparently have the face-making contest, depending on various traditions and various interpretations and translations, although I still can't quite find a good attestation for that particular detail in the extra mythology video. Um, they have the dream sequence. That one's fairly well attested in both the epic and the... the um, the myth, although, again, it's super fragmentary, and my understanding is, like, the fact that there are a bunch of dreams is a fairly recent development in interpretation, though there's clear attestations for that. Um, suffice it to say, the main event of Gilgamesh versus Humbaba is definitely Old Sumerian in origin, um, and our Akkadian tran translator slash compositor, Eki Imnani, is definitely borrowing heavily from this myth specifically. Um, it's entirely possible that the fragment that we have from the Old Sumerian is actually part of a longer tradition, an actual Old Babylonian epic, which includes other fragments. Um, though we're going to treat them as different myths here, because again, it's unclear whether they are all part of some grander epic tradition or whether they were individual myths. Again, these are real broken tablets. We really don't have a lot of context. There's not a lot of information surrounding them. Um, so we're going to treat this as an isolated thing. Gilgamesh and Humbaba, or Gilgamesh and the Land of the Living. Um, it may or may not be part of the same story as what is usually called the Death of Gilgamesh. Um, i.e. Gilgamesh goes to the underworld, gets tested, has a lot of the events that we will see in the Akkadian version, um, may or may not meet Utnapishtim, although that's, a, like, the, the inclusion of the flood story is obviously an invention of uh, Sinleki Anuni um, in his epic, and not part of the way that the story was originally told. Suffice it to say that there's definitely a tradition of Gilgamesh and, like, Enkidu beating up Humbaba, and there's also definitely a tradition of Gilgamesh going into the underworld and having various trials in an effort to sort of gain immortality. Um, along with this is 
the weird version of Gilgamesh and Enkidu going into the underworld themselves. Um, there's apparently a pretty decent attestation for this, although I'm not entirely sure how much of that is, like, borrowed from the epic or, or where exactly this fits into the grand scheme. Suffice it to say, there is a tradition where Gilgamesh and Enkidu, like, have this weird interaction. Like, Enkidu wants to go into the underworld and Gilgamesh gives him advice, you know, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Um... In the epic, the Akkadian version by Sidlecki and Nuni, this is really weird because this section is definitely added on totally out of chronological order as the 12th tablet in the sequence. And contemporary scholars seem to be pretty kind of unsure about what the deal is here. Um, it doesn't belong is kind of what it comes down to. Like, as we'll talk about in a moment when we actually go over a summary of what's going on in the Gilgamesh epic, you know, we have this story. It's pretty straightforward and pretty chronological. Like, Gilgamesh, Enkidu, they go to kill Humbaba, Enkidu dies, Gilgamesh is sad, so he goes to the underworld, hijinks ensue. Um, but importantly, there's this sort of alternative version of the time that Enkidu died, where Enkidu goes to the underworld after not heeding Gilgamesh's advice, and Gilgamesh sort of, like, has to go get him, or, like, prays about him, and gets a whole bunch of advice from maybe Shamash, it's not clear. Um, some people treat this as coming from a totally different Sumerian source, some people treat this as part of the Akkadian epic, it's very obviously part of the Akkadian epic, which is, like, the weirdest part. Like, there's this great attestation through the, the colophons um, on the text that there's clearly supposed to be 12 tablets to the epic, and the 12th tablet just doesn't make any sense from our modern sensibilities. So one of the things that you'll see, especially if you find these sorts of composite versions of the text, is that most people are going to cut it off after tablet 11 and be like, yeah, tablet 12 is here, but we're not going to pay any attention to it because, you know, screw you, we, we are smarter than they are. And one of the things that I admire about Gilgamesh and Mayer is that, no, they, they include it. Like, we don't know why it's here. We don't know why Sinleki and Nuni insisted on including it, even though it's clearly out of sync with the rest of the translation. If we wanted to present this for a popular audience, yeah, by all means, drop it. But if we're going to actually talk about what is Sinleki and Nuni doing, what are his intentions, what is the actual literary, you know, thinking behind it, we're going to have to talk about the fact that there is this weird secondary story after the main story has gone on that is completely out of sync, that cannot coexist, that contradicts the uh, energy of the original story. Um, so that's a thing. Um, and we're going to talk about it. Like, it is frequently treated as a separate myth in its own right. We are going to talk about it as though it, in fact, informs our understanding of what Sinleki Anuni is doing and what he's bringing to the table as far as bringing the Gilgamesh epic into the Akkadian corpus. Um, so keep that in mind. We also have a couple of other things. Like, there is an old myth of the Gilgamesh and the Bull of Heaven, which was discovered fairly recently. I think it's even more recent than Marin Gardner's translation here. Um, but you can definitely find it on the Sumerian e-text corpus business. Um, that, too, is definitely a major consideration of the composition of this epic, although I think it's been discovered since. I don't exactly know what the deal is with the Bull of Heaven story. Suffice it to say that 
like there is definitely a bull of heaven episode in the epic as we have from Sinleki Anuni, and he's obviously borrowing heavily from the Sumerian source. Um, this was a tradition that definitely predated Sinleki Anuni's take on the material. And it's very clear from the way that Sinleki Anuni uses these other myths that we're talking about that he is borrowing heavily from Gilgamesh and Humbaba, from Gilgamesh and the Bull of Heaven, from, you know, Gilgamesh and Kidu and the Descent into the Underworld, as well as a couple of stories that aren't Gilgamesh-related much at all. Specifically, there are two myths in the ancient Near Eastern texts that obviously Sinleki Anuni is using very heavily um, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. First of all, the one that Pritchard sort of entitles the Deluge, um, i.e., the Mesopotamian flood story about Utnapishtim. Um, like, Sinleki Anuni does some weird stuff with it, which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about in the second lecture. Um, but suffice it to say, there is this old Sumerian myth about the flood that is really kind of important and interesting to a lot of scholars because it, again, corroborates the Old Testament Noah story and it probably is where we are deriving the whole... Um, Deucalion and Pyrrha story from Greek mythology. There's a flood story, and it's the oldest telling of the flood story that we have access to, and it is really significant, and it's clear that Sinleki Anuni basically, like, borrows 90% of it um, when he just decides to incorporate it into the Epic of Gilgamesh, despite the fact that it has virtually nothing to do with Gilgamesh, except in the way that Sinleki Anuni is telling the story. Um, so we got to consider this as one of our major sources as well. Clearly an old Mesopotamian myth, clearly an old Sumerian story recorded in Sumerian language that has legs and that makes its way into the epic as well. Lastly, we have this really important story in the Babylonian Sumerian corpus called the Inanna's Descent to the Underworld, where Inanna is the sort of early Sumerian version of what the Akkadians are going to call Ishtar. Ishtar is a hugely important character um, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Like, she's one of, I'd say, the three or four most important god figures who show up at various times. And it's also significant that a lot of the material that describes Ishtar's descent into the underworld is pretty well reused in Gilgamesh's own trip to the underworld in the Epic. So, again, this is one of our major sources here. Um, in Ishtar, or Inanna's Descent to the Underworld, we get this sort of weird situation where Inanna wants to go to the Underworld for some reason, and nobody really knows why that part of the text is lost. And then she's, like, dead in the Underworld, and somebody else has to go and get her. Like, she sends a servant who goes to all the other gods, and they get their help, and then they come back. And there's some real interesting stuff here about, like, Inanna as corpse, which... I don't even know. Like, we'll talk a little bit about the Mesopotamian view of death, probably in the next lecture. Um, suffice it to say that this is one of the hugely informative texts that we have and that Sinleki Anuni was likely using in composing his own descriptions of the underworld and his own discussion of Gilgamesh's visit there. Um, so those are our big mythological sources that sort of contribute and that Sinleki Anuni is borrowing from or referring to or that we refer to in understanding who Gilgamesh was, what his various mythological accomplishments were, so on and so forth. We got the historical figure the king probably hanging around in 2700 BCE. We've got all these stories running from like 2500 to 2200 talking about Gilgamesh and all of his awesome stuff in Sumerian. And then we've got this big Akkadian epic sort of joining together a lot of these traditions, turning it into an epic narrative in its own right, but again, for its own purposes. And I want to stress that. 
like the reason why we are focusing specifically on Sinleki Anuni and the Epic of Gilgamesh, as it's usually called, is because it is, again, a literary work, although a fragmentary, broken, and messy one to try and sort of interpret. The myths are really hard to place. You, you can't really treat them as literary works in their own right. Like, you might be able to see glimpses of why the author might have done this, what it might be contributing to a cult surrounding Gilgamesh or to the religious understanding of the Mesopotamian world at large, but you really can't... There's not enough to work with to get a sort of coherent view of that author's perspective. Um, like many of the Greek myths which sort of have a tradition and then sort of calcify into this one version of the telling that then gets retold over and over with minor differences that you can then appreciate and sort of understand in their own time and, and place. You can't do that with the bedrock stuff when it's this short and this fragmentary. Like, there's little enough of a lot of these myths that we can sort of understand what is even going on. Like, there are still, like, really weird words and, and uh, events that we don't even understand in these little myths. Like, there's this whole thing in, in Gilgamesh and his, you know, attack on Humbaba with the, the Miku and the Poop Piku, and we're like, what the hell is a Miku or a Piku? And we, we have no idea, and it's just like, okay, I guess it's not terribly relevant to the story, even though the author seems to think it's really important. It clearly doesn't inform our understanding of Gilgamesh beating the crap out of out of Humbaba, so I guess we'll just have to leave the Miku and Piku. And then apparently in the Hittite version, one of these is a drum. So I don't even know. Nobody knows. That's kind of what it comes down to. So these myths, we can't really treat as literary works. we got to treat them as the bedrock for things to come. But the great thing about the epic, as we have it, is since it's borrowing so much from these traditions, we can actually look. How is this text modifying these stories? What gods are now emphasized and what gods are de-emphasized? And then speculate, okay, why? What, why does Sinleki Anuni include this part but change that part? Why does he include this speech but modify that speech? Um, and that's kind of the goal here, which again we're going to do in some more significant detail in our next uh, lecture, our next discussion. Um, so again, we're going to take a look at what Sinleki Anuni is doing, the, the priorities he has in mind, the changes that he is making to these stories, because we can afford to do that given the fact that we have some of his sources here. Um, so with that in mind, let's talk about big picture. Let's actually tell the story here for a moment. Um, so big picture, we got to talk about Gilgamesh structurally, like as a physical thing. Um, Gilgamesh was... Uh, at least, again, the version that we have from the Library of Ashurbanipal, which is definitely the Sinleki Anuni version and the one that we're relying heavily on, and which is very much the frame for all those composite works that we've sort of strung together, um, it exists on 12 tablets, each of which has six columns. And these are dense friggin' columns. Like, we are talking about many, like often 40, 50 lines to a column, sometimes even significantly more, especially with the, the uh, tablet... 11, I want to say, and the story that Utnapishtim gives us about the, the flood. Um, like, 
Notice, though, that as much, as much as we know that there are supposed to be 12 tablets, each of which have six columns, um, many of those tablets are broken or fragmentary. Many of the columns are just out and out missing. We know from the publishing information, like the little colophons on the end of each tablet, um, like we have enough of them intact to know that there are supposed to be 12 tablets, there are supposed to be six columns to a tablet, um, and we have a rough idea of what's supposed to be contained on each one of them. But again, a lot of them are missing. So what we know is this is what it's supposed to look like, and this is what we have. The trouble is some of the fragments are so small or so, you know, decontextualized that there's been a lot of discussion about, like, where certain fragments actually go. Um, like, for example, I talked a little bit a moment ago about the dream sequence and how weird the dream sequence is. From what I can tell, the dream sequence was kind of up in the air as to what tablet it was even supposed to be on. Like, some of the fragments we have of the dream sequence clearly are talking about this sequence of dreams, and we have, like, a pretty decent view of, like, the third dream all by itself, but we had no idea where it fit in the narrative. So, for example, in Gardner's translation, Mayer's translation, they put the dream sequence in the fifth tablet where most scholars now are sticking it in the fourth as part of a larger sequence that Gardner and Mayer didn't appreciate or, or have, either because this is something that's been discovered since or because it's something else entirely. Again, once I get the more updated text, hopefully I'll be able to appreciate exactly what's going on there. Fingers crossed. We'll talk about it more later. Um, but again, not every one of the problems with this text have been resolved as neatly as this one has. Um, there are probably still errors in the order of events, in the way that they're told, even in the translation. Um, because many of these words are still very obscure, many of the letters are, or rather syllabic symbols, are unclear or can mean multiple things. There's a lot going on with the actual business of translation here, um, and I want to sort of recognize that. The story we're telling could be wrong in a variety of ways, not just on the nitty-gritty detail stuff, like who's talking to who at any given moment, as is really obvious, again, in that Gilgamesh and Agus story, um, but also just, like, what words are being used, how we translate it one way or the other, whether this is a formula or whether this is a deviation from a formula or whether this is something entirely new altogether. Um, again, a lot of that we'll talk about in the next lecture. Um, but let's stress, we got 12 tablets, we got six columns. Now, the 12 tablets, I'm going to try and, like, give you the overview here. Again, the composite version of this story. Um, so on tablet one, we're introduced to Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh is apparently the king of Uruk, and there's apparently some problems with Gilgamesh's kingship. Um, most scholars seem to think that he is basically taking advantage of his kingly right question mark by basically sleeping with every young woman on the first night of her marriage before the husband gets to. Um, this is what the medievals would have called prima noctis, and it was a fairly rarely practiced pr uh, tradition, specifically because it pisses off your, your subjects, like, badly. Nobody wants to share their brand new wife with the king or lord on day one of, of their marriage. Um, it also seems to be the case that Gilgamesh is doing something with the young men, like he's going to battle a little too frequently or something. At any rate, the people are dissatisfied. They cry out to the gods. The gods answer their prayer by creating Enkidu, who is apparently every bit 
at least as far as Sidlecki Anuni is concerned, Gilgamesh is equal. Uh, now, it's significant to note, again, this is a deviation. Uh, the Akkadian version, the epic of Gilgamesh, treats Enkidu as this, you know, totally unique figure who comes out of literally nothing. The gods make him on the spot as this perfect match, this, this sort of competitor to Gilgamesh. Um, whereas in most of this, the Sumerian versions of the story, Enkidu is Gilgamesh's servant, and everyone just kind of understands that he is that way, and if there is some Sumerian attestation for Enkidu's supernatural origins, I don't know what it is, and I don't think any scholars have found any evidence of that either. Um, but it, since we're following the epic here, we'll follow the epic here. Enkidu is made by the gods, dropped into the wild, and becomes just a completely uncivilized wild man. Um, which is itself a problem. We are introduced to another character called the Stalker, as per Gardner's translation, or the Hunter. Um, another man who is sort of living on this periphery between civilization and the wild, who is troubled by Enkidu's presence, because Enkidu keeps, like, messing up his traps and interfering with, like, planting rituals and stuff. Because he's this super strong dude who is apparently on Team Animal here. Um... So the stalker hires a temple prostitute, this is a thing, don't want to get into it, um, to basically seduce Enkidu, have sex with him, and this will basically cut him off from the natural world, which is what happens. Um, the temple prostitute sleeps with Enkidu, Enkidu feels the touch of a woman, and as a con consequence, he can't go back to the animals. The animals, like, reject him, the natural world rejects him, but it's not all loss because Enkidu also gets knowledge and wisdom from this interaction. In short, Enkidu becomes human at this moment. Um, which, again, we'll talk about the the sort of, like, interpretation and, and you know, potential symbolic applications in the next lecture. Um, so Enkidu is seduced. Enkidu hears about Gilgamesh. The stalker tells him about this. And Enkidu is kind of ticked about this whole Gilgamesh situation. So he goes to Uruk. Cue Tablet 2. Um, tablet 2, from what I understand, is a giant mess, and it's not been fixed. Um, where some of the tablets are, like clearly intact or have been sort of pieced together or have been reinterpreted over the years. Tablet 2 is still just a wreck as far as I understand it. Um, but we do have the basic gist of what's going on here from the fragments that we do have. Specifically, Enkidu confronts Gilgamesh. Um, the Extra Mythology video has it as like he puts out his leg, which apparently blocks Gilgamesh. Um, Gardner translates it as he like plants his feet and like faces off with him at, at the entrance to some door somewhere. The short version is they fight and then they're matched for each other and it's unclear exactly who triumphs, but it kind of doesn't matter because then they hug and they're best friends and that's just the way it works. Shut up. Don't ask questions. Um, but literally this is how the text approaches it. Like, they fight, they square off, they immediately become best friends, and now they are apparently joined for life. Um, at the end of Tablet 2, though, Enkidu expresses that he has some concerns about this Humbaba character, who is apparently living in the wilderness and, like, protecting the cedars, again, according to the old Babylonian tradition, the old Sumerian, uh, myth. The, it's not, not quite clear from the, the epic, at least as I have it at this point, that Enkidu has a real beef with Humbaba, like why he's an apparent 
like existential threat or whatever. Um, whether it's, you know, he's scary and we need to stop this, or Gilgamesh is just like, he sounds like a big dude, let's kill him and make ourselves famous. It's really, really not clear. Um, but suffice it to say, that's Tablet 2 so far as we have it. Um, tablet 3 is also a giant mess. Very fragmentary. I don't think we have very much at all of what's going on in Tablet 3. Um, although, again, we do have, like, bits and pieces. The main thrust of Tablet 3 seems to be, okay, Gilgamesh is, like, asking for advice and preparing for the big trip to go take out Baba. Um, so he talks to his mom, namely Ninsun, the goddess. Um, Gilgamesh, by the way, is, like, two-thirds god and one-third human. Not entirely sure what the deal is there or how the math works out. Suffice it to say, his mom is Ninsun, the goddess, and Ninsun, the goddess, like, gives him some advice and, you know blessings and stuff. Um, Gilgamesh also talks to the council of the city at Uruk, apparently, but that's, like, really fragmentary, and we don't have very much of it at all. Um, and then they apparently, like, head out, but again, it's very broken, it's very unclear. Suffice it to say, this is, like, pre-gaming for our epic journey, let's let's get our stuff together, let's, let's talk to all the relevant advisors and move along. Um, Tablet 4, again, is a bit questionable, as far as I can have it. Um, Gardner has it that Tablet 4 is basically totally lost, and we have very little of it. Apparently it is the journey to go to the land of the Cedars, where Humbaba is hanging out. Contemporary scholarship likes to think that this is, this is the, the dream sequence tablet, and most of the dream sequence stuff they just sort of compact in here. Gardner has it in Tablet 5. Again, probably siding with the more contemporary scholars on this one. Um, namely that Tablet 4 is, like, they're on their trip, and then we have this sequence of dreams, and every night, like, Gilgamesh goes to sleep, has a dream, asks Enkidu about it in the morning, and Enkidu gives him some positive spin on it. Dude, those horrible omens are actually totally positive omens, and we should just keep pressing on. Um, this is especially striking because, like, in Gardner's translation, it's Gilgamesh who is convincing Enkidu to go, whereas here it's Enkidu convincing Gilgamesh to go. Again, not entirely clear on what the deal is here. Hopefully I'll have that sorted out by the second lecture, or we'll, like, edit this one a little bit. Um, either way... Tablet 4 is all, let's go on the journey, It's we're going on a journey, hooray, traveling. Um, tablet 5 is where we actually get the confrontation with Humbaba. And this one is also pretty messed up and fragmentary, um, but we do get the major points. Namely that they square off against Humbaba, they do in fact kill Humbaba, which is significant, like... In the original Gilgamesh versus Humbaba myth, it seems that everyone is pretty reluctant to actually kill Humbaba because Humbaba is like a divinely appointed guardian of the cedars, so it's not entirely clear like whether Gilgamesh is, you know, pissing off the gods by by killing their appointed guardian or not. Um, here, there seems to be a lot less question about it, and Gilgamesh and Enkidu are just like, "Yep, we're gonna kill him," and they they do in fact kill him, and Humbaba is like very sad and dies and the whole thing, and then they apparently cut down cedars because doors and civilization and so on and so forth. Again, pretty fragmentary, not entirely clear what's what's going on here. Um, it's also not entirely clear how this connects to what happens next, at least as far as Gardner's translation is concerned. Again, we'll get it, we'll make some changes if necessary um, once we get some, some more information about how exactly all this pans out. In Tablet 6, we get this really weird interaction between Gilgamesh and Enkidu on the one hand, and Ishtar on the other. 
Apparently it starts with, like, Ishtar the goddess comes to Gilgamesh, apparently intending to seduce him. And Gilgamesh is like, screw you, no way, there's no way that I can trust you, you goddesses, and you especially, Ishtar, are really untrustworthy, and, you know, you've hung other mortals out to dry, so I'm not touching you with a ten-foot pole. At which point Ishtar, very offended, sends the Bull of Heaven to, like, wreck Gilgamesh. But since Gilgamesh and Enkidu were heroes, they beat the crap out of the bull, and Enkidu even goes so far as to, like, rip off the bull's leg and throw it at Ishtar at some point. Like... This one we're definitely going to talk about in the next lecture because there's a lot of potential context and interpretation that goes into this, and it's really interesting to see the sort of lines between what is good and bad behavior between humans and goddesses and gods here, especially because most of the gods we're interacting with, namely Shamash, who gives Enkidu some pretty good advice, um, Ea, who turns out to be like this really awesome protector later on in the text, Generally, there's a fairly positive relationship between, like, Ninsun and Gilgamesh, Ea and uh, Gilgamesh and Utnapishtim, um, Shamash and, and Enkidu. But here, like, they're nasty to Ishtar for some reason. And this is apparently legitimate. And it just gets weird. Um, suffice it to say, they have their beef with Ishtar, they kill the Bull of Heaven, good for them, more heroic deeds, chalk another one up for Gilgamesh and Enkidu, but apparently in Tablet 7, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Ishtar apparently, like, conspires with Enlil, another one of the, the god figures that we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and Enlil apparently, like, decides that, okay, we're gonna kill one of these dudes, and I pick Enkidu because I said so. Um, and Enkidu is like, oh crap, I'm gonna die, now I am sad, and proceeds to give us a huge speech about how sad he is, and Enkidu gets really grumpy about the fact that he was, like, civilized in the first place, and he gets mad at the temple priestess who seduced him, but Shamash is like, dude, it's not her fault, and think of all the cool stuff that happened, and Enkidu is like, yeah, I guess you're right, I'll bless her instead. Um, so we get this whole weird situation where now Enkidu is gonna die, and Enkidu gets sad about it, and then number of people make speeches about it, um, and then he finally dies, and Gilgamesh is sad. And in all of Tablet 8, it's basically Gilgamesh saying all these nice things about Enkidu and doing all the things that he promised to do now that Enkidu is dead. Like, big funeral celebration, whole, Ur whole city of Uruk turns out for it. Um, everybody is really sad that Enkidu is gone, is kind of what it comes down to. Um, although... Tablet 8 is also pretty fragmentary. Tablet 7, there's, like, missing pieces, but we have a lot of it, so it's a little half and half there. Um, Tablet 9 is when Gilgamesh apparently is so upset about this whole Enkidu business and, and so upset specifically that death is a thing. Like, Gilgamesh is out to, like, beat the crap out of death now. Um, you know, if Enkidu is going to die, Gilgamesh is going to take out the guy who did it, namely death itself. Um, so Gilgamesh goes on this big trip to the underworld, and in Tablet 9, he goes on his journey, he meets the Scorpion Men, apparently, and has some conversations, and the Scorpion Men are like, dude, there's no way that you can possibly do this, death is permanent, it is a fixture, it is not to be controverted, and you, human, are not going to be able to change that. And Gilgamesh is like, eh, I do what I want, I'm Gilgamesh, I'm two-thirds god, I, me and Enkidu kicked Humbaba's butt, like, what are you going to do about it? The Scorpion Men are like, okay! And Gilgamesh continues, even beyond all expectation, like, despite the fact that it's absurd and ridiculous, and seems to be, the, the fact that he accomplishes this does seem to be presented as itself miraculous and heroic. Again, we'll talk about that more next time. 
Tablet 10 is deeper into the underworld. He's getting closer and closer to what's actually going on. Tablet 10 is three primary interactions between Gilgamesh and a questionably divine figure. Um, first, he runs into Siduri the barmaid, who is apparently a manifestation of Ishtar. Like, it's not explicit in the text, but like every translator and every commentator I've seen is like, dude, that's totally Ishtar. So, okay, totally Ishtar. Um, Gilgamesh and Siduri have a long conversation, and Siduri, too, tells him that this is futile and he's got no chance, and there's no way that he's going to successfully do this. Gilgamesh, of course, being Gilgamesh, is like, don't care, moving on, and he goes deeper, despite the fact that it's supposedly impossible, and meets Urshanabi, the boatman who apparently runs the boat that is going to take him over the River of Death, which, again, is not something he's supposed to be able to do. Now, he's gotten advice from Siduri. Specifically, there are, like, these stone doodads, stone images or something, and these snake things. It's not entirely clear what happens here because the tablet is sort of messed up, but at least as Gardner has it, or Gardner and Mayer, I should say, um, Gilgamesh, like, shows up, immediately breaks all of the stone and snake things, and Urshanabi is like, dude, well, that was it for, like, now you can't get across. Um, they have a conversation, and ultimately, like, Gilgamesh puts together these sort of reed punting poles, and Urshanabi manages to take Gilgamesh over the river anyway. But, remember this, it will become important in a moment. Finally, Gilgamesh makes it over the River of Death and talks to Utnapishtim, who is apparently the one guy who managed to transcend death. So despite all the odds and all the people who told him that this was impossible, Gilgamesh has in fact made it to the guy that he intended to talk to. They said it couldn't be done. Gilgamesh has done it. But talking to Utnapishtim also turns out to be a little bit of a letdown. Now, it should be worth noting here that all of the speeches that Gilgamesh makes to Siduri, the barmaid, Ushnabi, the boatman, and Utnapishtim, the guy who survived the Great Flood, are identical. They're formulaic. Um, Sinlaki Anuni is clearly borrowing from the old Sumerian form of these speeches being repeated over and over again, something that is fairly anomalous in Akkadian literature, which we're not going to get too deep into here. We might be able to talk about it more next time. Whatever the case is, we're not getting a whole lot of new information here is what I'm stressing. Like, usually it's, you know, whoever the person Gilgamesh meets says, dude, what are you doing here? You can't possibly do this thing that you're going to do. Like, even the very next step is impossible. Gilgamesh goes in with the, I am Gilgamesh, here are all of my list of accomplishments. Um, I'm going to do this anyway. The other divine figure is like, okay, here's what you do. Gilgamesh does it, sort of, moves on to the next person, does the same thing, wash, rinse, repeat. Um... Utnapishtim, however, has more information to give him. Um, specifically, Utnapishtim tells him the flood story. Like, start to finish, the first three columns of Tablet 11 are basically like, here's how Ea and I conspired to preserve the human race despite all the gods trying to wipe us out. Darn it, Enlil, because Enlil is apparently, again, the mastermind here. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um... Utnapishtim successfully saves the day. He builds, like, this giant reed boat. Like, when I say giant, I mean giant. Like, apparently the the me the measurements of this thing are comparable to the giant ziggurat that is usually understood to be the Tower of Babel. 
um, in the Old Testament. Like, we're talking about a huge friggin' boat. Like, Noah's Ark has got nothing on this thing. Um, so he builds this giant reed boat, and the world gets flooded, and everyone dies except Utnapishtim, and Utnapishtim survives, and then the gods are really grumpy about it, so they're all, like, really ticked at Aeoth for saving him. And Aeoth presents a pretty powerful defense, and we get some, like, really awesome quasi-biblical stories about, like, why things are the way they are, why humans have to suffer the way that they do. Um, and it's very significant in this text and throughout Sumerian literature that, like, the history of the world as the Sumerians understand it is very much divided by this event. There is the pre-flood time and the post-flood time. Very comparable to the way that the Old Testament understands before and after the fall of man in Genesis 1-3. to Um... Clearly, the world is a worse, uglier place post-flood. Uh, and the fact that humans are even here is both a shocking, miraculous blessing, but also kind of a horrible curse. And death is sort of the clear, obvious signifier of this. Um, as much as Gilgamesh does not conquer death, spoiler alert, um, he does in fact get the knowledge of why death is where it is, which is a pretty impressive accomplishment all by himself. Um, the back half of Tablet 11 is Gilgamesh being like, okay, that's all very good, but, you know, how do I beat death? And Utnapishtim is like, dude, you can't beat death. At which point we get the two tests. Um, specifically, Gil like he's like, okay, Gilgamesh, you think you're so awesome and you think you can beat death? Try staying awake for seven days straight. And Gilgamesh immediately falls asleep and sleeps for seven days straight. Um, so, like... Uh, Utnapishtim wakes him up and is like, dude, you were just asleep for seven days. And he's like, no, I wasn't. I was only asleep for like 30 seconds. And Utnapishtim is like, we set out food for you and it's all rotten now. And Gilgamesh is like, ooh, oops. The second test, like, as much as Utnapishtim tells him, all right, so you're doomed to die. No way you can beat death. Sucks to suck. He's like, oh, also, by the way, here's this magic plant that'll make it so you're, like, young and can live forever. I don't know. Again, the traditions here, the logic here, are very much out of sync with our contemporary expectations. Heck, it's out of sync with what the Greeks tend to think. Um, so Gilgamesh is like, cool, I've got this awesome plant. Let me bring it home to Uruk and share it with all my dudes. And he takes the plant and he goes back on the boat after being explicitly told by Utnapishtim, that's it, nobody can ever cross the river again. Again, this was it. Like, this is the big accomplishment of Gilgamesh, so nobody else gets to repeat it. And apparently while Gilgamesh is bathing on the other side of the river, some snake runs off with the plant, and, and the snake gets to be immortal or something. Like, it's kind of unclear from the text. And Gilgamesh is obviously really upset about this, because, you know, this was the big last hope that he had, and now it's all gone. And that's kind of where the story ends, as far as Tablet 11 is concerned. Like, we get this fairly major closing formula. The story very much is complete. Um, and then we go into Tablet 12, which is, again, like I said, something completely different. Namely, you know, Enkidu wants to go to the underworld. P.S. Enkidu is alive now. Gilgamesh is like, okay, do X, Y, Z, don't do A, B, C. And Enkidu immediately does all the wrong things doesn't do XYZ, does do ABC, gets himself in a lot of trouble, Gilgamesh goes to the underworld to bail him out, can't, and instead gets a lot of good advice from Shamash. Um, so, again, uh, it's clear that Tablet 12 is different, it doesn't belong to the thrust of the story in Tablets 1-11, to but we are going to talk about it, because, again, it's clearly part of the same work, clearly by the same author, 
clearly supposed to be included as far as Sinlekian Udi is concerned, so the epic includes Tablet 12 as far as we're concerned. Again, it's really obvious that Sinlekian Udi is drawing from a bunch of different traditions here. You can see story beats and even whole, like, translated conversations borrowed explicitly from those mythic sources, although he is rearranging them, de-emphasizing de certain things. He's obviously got his own priorities, his own inclusions, which again we'll talk about more next time. But I do just want to have this sort of baseline summary version of the story out of the way before we start digging into this as, as sort of a literary work, talking about like the actual specifics of what's going on scene to scene, speech to speech, event to event, and, and digging into exactly how this, this changes and represents what Sinlecki and Nuni is doing. Um, but for now, let's call it there. Um, We'll talk more about all the rest of the, the text stuff and literary critical stuff next time. Hopefully I'll have that lecture out on Monday. Um, hopefully I won't have to change this lecture too much, but if necessary, I shall. Um, so keep your eye out for that. Um, in the meantime, I look forward to talking about Gilgamesh with you more soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.